Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, here we are in August already. Happy August, everyone. Hope you all had a nice summer vacation by this time. Hope you were able to go somewhere for your vacation that was not too hot this summer or smoky or even somewhere not too flooded, right? It's all these things this summer. It's also always good, too, if you can find some place not too crowded, right? That's why some of you wait till fall to travel, and that's really just smart. We didn't play it so smart when um, my family and I joined over 20 million tourists who visited London this summer. 20 million. It was so crowded. I attribute it to pandemic backlash, everybody wanting to get back into vacationing. We ended up not even getting out of the car in London for all those famous attractions, except for one. I wanted, uh, no, I needed to walk across that famous Abbey Road crosswalk in London. And you know, the actual crosswalk, which in 1969, the four Beatles themselves were photographed walking over to Abbey Road Studios. Well, today, thanks to the crowds and the cars that don't want to slow down for every dazed tourist trying to make his Instagram dream come true, it's nigh impossible to capture the right camera angle that even remotely resembles the original Abbey Road album cover. So my daughter was smart. She took a video instead of a blurry snapshot of me so that I could later go through the video and freeze it at the best frame. But even then, because of the crowds, even when you think you have a clear shot of your subject on the video, it's like, where am I amidst that crowd? Oh, wait, there's my left heel. I recognize my black shoe as it disappears behind a big red double-decker bus, brimming with even more tourists, right? Yes, that's because of the loathsome crowds. I left that scene pretty dissatisfied that day. Of course, it never occurred to me at the time that I myself was also part of the crowd, right? (laughs) Chances are I was overcrowding someone else's space for that iconic reenactment photo. Cursed crowds, those inconvenient crowds. And yet, and yet. In our gospel lesson today, Jesus has to deal with huge, and as we shall see, huge and hungry crowds. We'll learn about how others, namely royalty, as well as lowly folks, everyday salt-of-the-earth folks like Jesus' disciples, we'll see how all of these different characters from Matthew 14 today relate to crowds. For context, in today's gospel, we learn that this crowd is very swift of foot. They watch Jesus get into a boat to be alone and They observe him head over to some desolate, quiet place, and this crowd anticipates specifically where Jesus' boat is taking him, and they get there first by scurrying themselves over on dry land. Needless to say, this crowd was motivated. Motivated for what? Well, they had very real needs, and we shall see in a few moments. uh, This guy, Jesus, like no other that they have known, was doling out real answers As we shall also see in a few moments, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This Jesus taught an earlier crowd that had gathered on a mount in Matthew's gospel. That's earlier from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. 
We'll look more at the crowd's motivation in a few moments. But first, the text tells us why Jesus was motivated to find some alone time, to just get away. We all need that at times, even Jesus. Verse 13 says, now when Jesus heard this, okay, heard what? When Jesus heard the news about the death of John the Baptist. Remember, they were cousins. When Jesus heard that news, it says he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now, in that moment of grieving, do you think maybe Jesus began to reflect back on his life together with his cousin, John? I mean, maybe Jesus in that moment recalled his own baptism, the one where his bewildered cousin, John, performed it, but only at Jesus' insistence upon it. We remember that. Perhaps also it brought a smile to Jesus' face, recalling once again that family baby story that his mom and John's mom, Aunt Lizzie Elizabeth, used to tell at all their family gatherings and on their long journeys together, walking from Galilee in the north to the temple in Jerusalem in the south. St. Luke preserves the record of those words as Mary, early with child, approaches her also pregnant cousin, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth exclaims to Mary, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Yes, getting news of John had to be a very difficult moment, humanly speaking, for Jesus. The one about whom Jesus once said, I tell you truly, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That voice of one calling in the wilderness was now stilled. Matthew, in the first half half of chapter 14, describes exactly what took place that resulted in John's death. It seems Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, was hosting a scrumptious and sensuous birthday party for himself with plenty of feasting and quote-unquote friends. That is to say, a veritable crowd was gathered there at Herod's palace. Now, because Herod didn't want to publicly go back on a word that he had frivolously uttered, perhaps drunkenly uttered as well, in front of his whole home crowd, Herod instead obliged his dancing stepdaughter's request. She wanted the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and she got it. Thus, this culture of death being barbarically portrayed at Herod's palace, now in the second half of Matthew 14, it serves as a backdrop or a dark contrast against the way Jesus, the author of life, deals with the even greater crowds pressing in on him. First of all, Jesus, despite just being emotionally waylaid by the news of his cousin's violent demise, Jesus is still willing, nevertheless, to tend to the needs of the pressing crowd before tending to his own needs. Jesus, this man of sorrows, fully God, yes, but fully man as well. This Jesus knew grief and pain and suffering like no other. The author of Hebrews nails it on the head when he says, quote, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted, stricken, afflicted, all of that. And the scripture doesn't say without 
tears, it says, without sin. Jesus wept. We know this. He went through all the worst pain and suffering that humans can devise and dole out to fellow humans, even death on a cross. Yet somehow, miraculously, Jesus endures all that loneliness and suffering without ever letting slip out in secret or in public any displeasing word before his heavenly Father. In his resurrection from the dead, Jesus does not come back angry with vengeance in his eyes. No, peace, shalom, peace be with you, is the first thing he always says to his disciples after rising from the dead. That's what he brings back. Now that peace with God has objectively been restored, reconciliation achieved by Christ, our Passover lamb. Through his unblemished body and his sin-cleansing blood offered up once for all, it is just as he said on the cross, it is finished. Jesus never put his needs before the needs of others. Thus, Jesus keeps the whole second table of the Ten Commandments. Now, of course, he keeps the first table, which are summarized by the expression, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this second table of the Ten Commandments is summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. And that is good news for us that Jesus perfectly kept that second table because we break those commandments pertaining to our neighbor all the time. Take, for example, the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. In his small catechism, Martin Luther asks, what does this mean, this eighth commandment? Here we're doing a little confirmation review, aren't we? Uh, This means, quote, this is Luther, we should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation in any way. Now, those are the don'ts that Luther lists there. Now, the oughts. But we ought to, quote, defend our neighbor, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way, unquote. Some translations say, always put the best spin on it. But we don't always do that, do we? We don't always explain everything in the kindest way pertaining to our neighbor. Therefore, we don't always love our neighbor as we ought. Now, since breaking any of the commandments is also always breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, we then miss the mark on fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things. This is most certainly true, because if we loved God truly above all things, then we would gladly obey all his commands all the time. And clearly, we do not. Forgive us, dear Lord. But Jesus did perfectly and joyously obey all of God's commands. And for that reason, it is very important to remember that this is why Jesus is our Savior. Not just a guide, not just a prophet who brings us God's word. That's how 1.8 billion Muslims understand who Jesus is. Now, to be sure, Jesus is a prophet. He is a guide, but he is so much more than just those things. Scouts need a trail guide, that's true. Disciples need a proclaimer of truth, a prophet, if you will. But sinners, sinners need a Savior. And if you leave that Savior part out of the equation, you've got nothing. Worse than that, you've got 
outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what you've got without Christ's saving work for people who can't save themselves. With St. Paul, then, we preach Christ and him crucified. Crucified for our transgressions. As Isaiah 53 proclaims, that well-known passage, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom, peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That was verse 5 from Isaiah 53. Now, as we proceed through our gospel text um, further today, we now come to observe how yet one other group of individuals relate to the crowds. And I'm talking about the very pragmatic disciples. We pick it up in verse 15, when, uh, which says this, quote, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Unquote. Well, doesn't that sound practical? Hey, it's been a long day for the disciples, too. It's quitting time. It's over. Let's punch the clock, nibble on our meager loaves and fish, then call it a night, huh? Sound good, fellas? Sounds fair enough, right? By itself. When we are our own echo chamber, it's always easy enough to cling to our own words as gospel. But when our words are placed side by side next to Jesus' words, uh, this Jesus who is the gospel, that pragmatic veneer of our words start to, starts to wear thin here and there, revealing some other underlying motives sometimes from underneath. Maybe there's a little self-interest beginning to show through. Send the crowds away, yes, so we can chill out and catch a bite to eat for ourselves. Dear Lord, you said you, we were going to look for a desolate place to recuperate and rejuvenate. Well, this is it. Or it will be that quiet, out-of-the-way place as soon as you send off this boisterous crowd. Do you think the disciples may have been a tad hangry at this point? Their comments and their attitude in verse 15 are sandwiched between the contrasting way in which Jesus looks at and talks about the crowds. Now, when what you say happens to be placed between two things on either side that Jesus has to say, um, on the matter, you best be prepared to clarify what you really meant to say, because you're most likely going to want to revise your comments by the time the Lord has spoken on the matter. So the disciples spoke there in verse 15, Master, send them away. Now it says of our Lord in verse 14, the first half of the sandwich, when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and what does it say? He had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Now, this is the exhausted, grieving Jesus again, seen amidst the crowd, working mercifully to heal and to graciously restore hurting lives. Now, after the disciples' request to send the crowd away, jumping to verse 16 now, the second half of the sandwich, Jesus says this, The crowd does not need to go away. And then Jesus adds, looking his disciples square in the eyes, you give them something to eat. Jesus speaks plainly and directly to his disciples. I like that. Though I don't like to admit it, that's how we, Christ's disciples today, need to hear it more often. 
Are we today by our own lack of compassion for people, or maybe just certain types of people, are we also looking to send the crowd away? Or do we reward their hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Do we extend the same kind of hospitality that Jesus practiced? Do we emulate divine hospitality, unconditional, like our God's love that is deep and wide? Our God is not a respecter of persons. The Lord still speaks today. He speaks through what he has already spoken in his word. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit to apply God's living and active word to our lives today. This includes, of course, those ancient lessons that Jesus taught his disciples, like in our gospel lesson today. The Spirit brings such lessons like today's lesson to our attention as well, because we struggle with the same send-them-away syndrome at times. So the Spirit spotlights our struggles with sin, The Spirit enlightens us and instructs us in the application of God's Word. He guides our implementation of it, even as He increases our own hunger and thirst for righteousness. Today, the Spirit's leading in loving our neighbor. It may take the form of something as simple as donating back-to-school supplies to needy students, like the drive we have going on right now. It could take the form of offering disaster relief funding that we send in through our Synod's website, or the Spirit-applied guidance of God's Word today. could also lead some of us to open our home, say, to an international student or perhaps to a refugee, that kind of hospitality. And loving thy neighbor may even mean, for some, the long-term commitment of adopting an orphan from a war-torn or recovering nation, as we have had parishioners do. And let's not forget, to those who are led by the Holy Spirit to teach the life-saving gospel of hope to children and to adults the world over, Sunday school teachers, pastors, and teachers. There really are myriad ways to love our neighbor. Not perfectly, as Jesus did it, but Because Jesus did it it so perfectly for us, we are free to attempt it and even fail at it. And we're even free to laugh a bit at ourselves when we do fail. We can laugh off our feeble attempts because, again, the requirement to get into God's perfect heaven has been perfectly accomplished by Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior. And he turned those fulfilled requirements into a free gift of grace to be received by faith by you and me. Because he looked at us too, and he had compassion on us, that same compassion he had on the multitudes, and that he still has for the whole world here in 2023. So out of his steadfast love and compassionate heart, Jesus died and rose for us. But some ask, Well, that was 2,000 years ago. What does he do for us today? Well, that actually leads us to this last aspect of the feeding of the 5,000 plus, which incidentally, this feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle besides the resurrection itself that is included in all four Gospels. So there's something here that 
the Lord does not want us to miss. So look closely again with me at verse 19. Then Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, unquote. Jesus took the meager five loaves and the two fish starter meal. It says he blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Blessed, broke, gave. Does that sound familiar? And he himself didn't even distribute to the crowd for whom he had such great compassion, right? No, the text says that he gave it to his disciples, his future church. That was his plan the whole time. His servants shall freely distribute the gifts of grace that the resurrected Christ bequeaths to his church, the forgiveness of sins in his name. Plus, those disciples, they also needed a little attitude adjustment, didn't they? Yes, the disciples needed to grow a little bit more patient themselves, as well as compassionate toward the crowds, right? They needed to grow a little more trusting, too, in terms of what the Lord can do, even when we bring him so little. And what exactly can Jesus do for which these disciples needed to trust him more? And by the way, they eventually will grow into greater faith and trust him more and more. Well, back then they were slow in seeing how Jesus, as both chief shepherd and lamb sacrificed, they had a hard time seeing how he could feed the multitude, including a very similar 4,000 people that he's going to feed in the very next chapter of Matthew. But ultimately, these disciples turned apostles will feed the flock Jesus will entrust to their care. And Jesus will raise up servants in every generation to do the same for his flock, the Holy Christian Church. And so in the end, Jesus' disciples will come to know that Jesus, their precious Lord and Savior, can feed his own, not just earthly bread that's here today and gone tomorrow, with no more staying power than that, but Jesus can also feed his flock the true bread from heaven, which packs the power of God to salvation because it comes with the forgiveness of sins. All sins throughout the ages, all your sins are forgiven from yesterday, today, and all your tomorrows. Jesus, who has been given all power in heaven and on earth, can feed his flock wherever they may gather. He can and still does feed the multitudinous members of his church the world over. What's more, he feeds them all his own body and his own blood, according to his own words themselves, so that in the end, all his sheep, like him, may live eternally forever in his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Through this holy meal that Jesus instituted in and for his church, even these 2,000 years later, can still strengthen and sustain you and me today. And he can keep on strengthening and sustaining us all the way up to yet another meal that he promises, one of which this communion today is but a blessed foretaste, a foretaste of the feast to come. And I'm talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the feast still to come. And it's only in that heavenly banquet to come that Jesus promises, I will drink this fruit of the vine anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Let the thought of that gladden your hearts even more. In that day we shall feast and not grow fat. We shall drink and not get drunk or hung over. Until then, we do well to accept our Lord's offer, made in ancient times, way back to Isaiah from our Old Testament lesson today. It stands the test of time all the way down to this present day. Quote, listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food, unquote. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no food more rich. There is no truer soul food, food for the soul, than what Jesus Christ has instituted for his church. Verse 20 from our gospel. And they all ate and were satisfied. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.